Man, I love, absolutely just love that last song. Um, you think about praise forever to the King of Kings. You know, that's really what we're here to do is to, to give our praise and our adoration to Christ who is Lord of Lords, who is King of Kings. Uh, and, and I love that, that bridge that talks about uh, the, the church of Christ being born. Right? You think about Pentecost Sunday and, and how sacred of a day it really is when the Spirit kind of lit it all into flame and how we have a chance to live out those truths that for thousands of years the gospel has been on the move. Right? It, it doesn't yield, it doesn't faint, it, it continues to be sturdy and strong and what a thing to celebrate and to give praise to. And, and it's what we want to give praise to this morning, especially in light of everything that we're facing uh, as a nation and, and really as a people, uh, not just across the world, but in particular here in our own country. Today's a day where we have to have harder conversations about what it means to be the church in a very difficult context. Uh, but my, my prayer and my hope is that once again, God will prove to be faithful um, and his spirit will, will guide us and lead us and we will see once more that this gospel doesn't yield. It continues to be the most powerful story that we have at our disposal, and it's the one we want to cling to this morning. And so as we prepare to embrace that truth again and study his word, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask that his spirit would lead us and guide us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, we come before you, Father, really just with a profound sense of heaviness. I would, I would say in light of all that we've been enduring as a people, um, you, you think about the ways that we've had to adapt our lives to a global pandemic and viruses and quarantines and the things that have obviously tested us in different ways and in different times. And yet, Father, we are mindful this morning of a much greater ill that continues to plague humanity, especially in our own context when we think about injustice and we think about racism, we think about tragedy of death and the loss of life, and we grieve with those who are grieving today, and we ask for a sensitivity and an awareness, Father, to know how to navigate, not a conversation, Father, but how to navigate life and, and how to truly begin to follow your lead, to follow your example, to follow your spirit to live out this gospel in a way that brings kindness and compassion and forgiveness and love. Father, that's what we desire. And we know it's only possible through your teaching and through your grace and through your mercy. And so come and join us now and lead us in the way of everlasting. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so I, I got the black eye on Thursday, which was uh, the celebration in the Smith household for the end of school. And so we were outside, part of the reason all the kids were outside running up and down the streets was school was out, and I don't know how summer's going to feel much different than school, but we still celebrated it one way or another. And it really has been a pretty significant milestone when you really stop and think about it, at least in our home, and I know that I, I, I think represent what a lot of families have gone through, whether you have school-age children or not, but y'all, we've, we've kind of been enduring this, this pandemic, and it's it been such a disruption to life that it's, it's pretty significant to say, all right, we, we got through almost two, six weeks worth of education at home, and we, we adapted, and, and all these things that we've all had to kind of navigate through. And one of the things that I would say is that while it's definitely come with different 
definite challenges along the way, there have been tremendous blessings. And, and one of those blessings is the time that I've had to spend with my children and as a family. When you think about the pre-COVID days on a given week, I probably spent on average just a couple of hours with my children in a given day, right? I saw them a little bit in the morning, saw them when I got home from work before they went to bed, and that was about it. And we went from that to spending all day, every day with each other. And, and so that was challenging in some respects, but it was also incredibly insightful to, to learn more about my children. And so we get to the end of the school year, and they're going through their virtual award ceremonies and all these other things, and you really just can't help but but be proud of what they've overcome, what they've done, and, and you're just seeing growth. And I think that's one of the things that you really treasure the most as a parent, is, is seeing your children grow and become their own person. And, and a lot of times we focus in on what they're becoming, right? We, we think about what job they may pursue when they get older, or what interests they may have, or what activities they want to be passionate about. And we think a lot about the what, but I think I speak for most parents when I say what really grabs our heart is not what our children are going to do, but who they are going to become, right? We, we think about their character. We think about their integrity. We think about their personality and just their, their soul, and, and that's where we really give our attention, and, and we keep asking ourselves this question as we go through this, this life of parenting, who are our children becoming? And one of the things I think we can all acknowledge and recognize is that that's a very profound question and one that never really needs to stop being asked, right? None of us, regardless of age, regardless of stage of life, reaches a point where we've arrived and, and, and we don't need to grow anymore. We don't need to learn anymore, right? We, we always need to be asking that question of ourselves, who are we becoming? Who are we as a people? And that's a question that I believe our country is absolutely gripped with right now. Who are we really? And it's one that we have to, to ask ourselves. And we have to ask ourselves individually so that we can ask of it more effectively corporately, be it as a church or be it in the community. And it's one of those things that we need to continue to wrestle with across the board. You know, you think about this pandemic. You think about uh, this virus and the way it's disrupted life. I don't know about you, but I had several moments in this process where I really became unsettled. And, and I think a lot of us had those moments, you know, they kind of sneak up on you where all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is way more than I can really grasp and comprehend. And, and then you kind of get back into normalcy and you just have those moments. And there were at least two things that distinctly I remember kind of creating that feeling of unsettledness through this process. I remember in the early phase uh, thinking through how we were now being put under these uh, stay-at-home orders, and I was trying to read more and more about this virus and the impact and what was happening around the world, and I came across an article, and a lot of the experts and in the researchers and all these people were saying in this article that this could last up to 18 months. And I remember reading that time frame, and it totally unnerved me. I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I can give you till July. You know, I'm not doing this for 18 months, you know, and just really, like, I couldn't sleep that night thinking about just how long this could last. Uh, eventually, I got through that, and I think we all kind of understand the longevity that this disruption is going to have and to create. But I remember that moment. I remember another moment, too, where I was reading about this uh, advanced approach in testing where they were going to start developing new tests that determine antibodies that people had and their 
ability to have immunity towards the virus and had they already had it and could they safely go out and what what really grabbed my attention in this article was the idea that if they could discover you had antibodies that maybe you could go to work quicker or you could go back to society quicker and it would be safer for you and those folks could return so that the economy could go in, but those that didn't have it would have to stay at home. And that concept really unsettled me. That, that somehow we would have like a test that would look at us and say, well, you're healthy enough so you can go, you can have opportunity, you can have these luxuries, you can have this comfort come back to you, and, and you over here, well, you can't. Just based on your genetic makeup, right? And how unfair that was gonna feel. And I was fearful of it, it really unnerved me. You know, I don't know that we're really on that progression, but I remember being unsettled by it. So, so let's imagine a worst case scenario for a moment where this virus never really goes away, right? In the minute that we, we think we have it figured out, it mutates and it just begins to manifest itself in another way. And all of a sudden what we're dealing with is not 18 months, but years and years and years. And in the process of us having to deal with that reality, we kind of instinctively fall into these categories where it just doesn't impact certain people the same way, right? That certain people are able to survive and thrive even despite its existence because they're immune to it. And so they have those opportunities and they have those, those freedoms and those luxuries that they can return to normalcy while others continue to have to live under this fear and this reality of this virus. Imagine that for a moment. And you could call it racism, right? Because that's really what we're looking at right now. When you begin to turn on the news and you hear the stories, is this new manifestation, this ancient manifestation of sin, which is racism, right? It springs up in all these different ways. For hundreds of years, people have said, here's how it manifests itself, only for it to adapt and then mutate and spring up in this way, in this way, in this way. And for hundreds of years, people have fallen into these categories. And we keep having to wrestle with it. And it's a very serious situation that we need to give thoughtful consideration to this morning. And so how do we do that? Or how, how do we have this sort of conversation in a meaningful way and in an appropriate way? And I'll be honest, I don't really know. And I'm not gonna pretend to know. But I want us to invite into the complexity of it together so that we can wrestle with this with some intentionality and with some thoughtfulness. Because when we begin to talk about racism, I would imagine that we have a wide array of reactions, right? We probably have a lot of different feelings and sentiments about it. And I think we have to acknowledge those two categories that exist, right? For some of us, there is this privilege Right? We are those that are not really the victims of racism. And so we have a luxury of being able to turn on and off this conversation as we want. Right? If we want to engage, we can. If we don't, we don't have to. And more or less, our lives are not impacted. We can just kind of move on. And then there are others who are the victims of racism who don't have that luxury. It's not a conversation you can turn on and off. It's, it's an everyday reality. And so we have these distinct categories that we fall into that dramatically influences our ability to have a dialogue and have any sort of understanding and conversation. And so what will happen is that a lot of misunderstandings will take place and we'll, we'll see 
these tragedies occur like the one that has occurred most recently with George Floyd. And, and the impulse will be to start, to start talking specifically about something, right? And, and we'll get into the details. And what ends up happening is we start talking about symptoms rather than talking about the actual disease, right? So we'll, we'll focus in on the Minneapolis Police Department and what was going on there or did he have a criminal background and what is the right way to protest and how quickly was somebody arrested and where they were charged and, and should they be looting, should they be vandalizing, all these different things. And we'll get so focused on the details that we'll get distracted from the actual issue. We'll focus in on the symptom that we stop and, and, and fail to see that what we're really talking about is the weight of generational sin that has plagued us for hundreds of years, right? Because today it's George Floyd. A couple of weeks ago, it was Ahmaud Arbery, right? Several months ago, it was a Tatiana Jefferson. When I was growing up, it was Rodney King. And when my parents growing up, it was somebody else, right? I mean, it, it's the same issue, but we, we get lost in the details. And what we have to do on the front end today is to stop and acknowledge the weight of generational sin. And what I mean by that is, is that this is an evil that has plagued humanity, not just like for 15 years or 20 years, but from generation to generation to generation to generation. And so one of the first things I wanna do is not presume upon the fact that we could come in here and just go, here's the answer. <laughs> it's not that easy. But we have to feel the weight of it. We, we truly live in a country that was founded upon an idea 11 years after 1776 where we came up with the three-fifths compromise. Remember that? Like, those are our roots. Three-fifths of a person. That's how we're going to consider a slave. That's how we're going to count them. We're a part of a denomination that formed itself based on views of slavery. Right? This is systemic. This is not isolated. This is not one incident. And so we have to acknowledge the weight of generational sin in order for us to deal with it appropriately. And, and part of that requires a pretty harsh introspection in ourselves to go, which category do I really fall in? Am I a victim of it? Or do I have the luxury and the privilege to pick and choose when it impacts me? And I think that's where I have wrestled a lot lately, is obviously that's the category that I fall in, and many of us fall in. And when you think about how this subject is often received, when you fall within that category, I think there's, again, a spectrum that we might fall on. There's, there's some of us that as soon as we see something like what we've seen that has happened in George Floyd and, and other evidences of racism, we, we grieve, we're angry, we're upset, we can acknowledge and and see and identify the injustice immediately. There are others that want to stay in denial, right? And, and, and just say, no, it's not an issue because, because we know racism is so sensitive, it's so divisive, and we just think, oh, I just don't want to talk about it, I don't want to bring it up, and so we just, we just stay in denial. It's not really out there, it's not an issue. Others continue to rationalize it, right? And so we'll focus on a detail that helps us explain it away, right? And we'll, we'll focus on something that says, well, no, it's really not that bad, you know, we had a, a black president recently and so clearly there's been a lot of progress, it's just a few isolated incidences or really this person was wrong because they made this choice and that choice and if they would just make these choices it would be different and, and we just rationalize it away and that's not helpful either. And some of us are racist. And we may not see ourselves that way 
right? Maybe we can hide it. Maybe we do see ourselves that way and we don't care. But I think we all have to at least be willing to ask the question, am I? Do I have impulses within me that when I see somebody of a different color, different culture, different background, that I feel a tendency to look at them differently, almost instinctively? Do I have those impulses? And what am I doing about those impulses? So here's the point. We all probably have a lot of different emotions just by the fact that I've brought it up. And so you probably fall somewhere on the spectrum. Here's what I know. It doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. As believers, we have to have the conversation. Period, the end. Because what we are seeing portrayed around us is a breakdown of loving the neighbor. And what is the very thing the church is called to do but to love the neighbor? And so we have to figure out how do we do that well in this context because it's the context that we've been placed in. And it just so happens that the passage that we're in in Ephesians today, I think, really speaks well to it. Uh, But here's what we're going to do. We're going to set the subject of racism right over here for a second, okay? Because I want us to learn an appropriate way to read Scripture, right? We don't bring our culture into Scripture to better understand verses, to better understand the Bible. We read the Scriptures to better understand culture, okay? And the passage that we're going to look at today applies to all areas of life and a number of different issues. And so we're going to, we're going to read it, we're going to understand it, and then after we have a, a, a better understanding of what it's saying, then we'll come back to this subject because it's so relevant for us today. And through it all, the question I want us to all be willing to ask ourselves, who are we becoming? Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to continue in this process just as I like to to remind you, we've had this journey where the first three chapters emphasize what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, that he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. You get to chapter four, and what do you have? You have an opportunity to see specific instructions. Therefore, live this way, right? Live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. And then we get uh, descriptions of what that that life looks like, that we pursue unity, that we pursue maturity. We talked about how we have to have right thinking that's going to lead us to right conduct. And and then you get this list, right? A list of here's the contrast between the old self and the new self, right? So, So quit living this way. Put off falsehood, put off stealing, put off unwholesome talk, but rather put on truth, work hard for others, build each other up by the words that you use. And you see this contrast. And so Paul's going to continue in that contrast. He's going to give us another list here, but, but we're going to find some, some beautiful summary statements that I think are going to really help serve as guidance as well today. So picking back up in chapter 4, verse 30, reading through chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, beautiful passage, right? That, again, just hear it for what it is. It speaks to all areas of life. You get a a new list of what the old self looks like and how it's different than the new self. The old self, get rid of all all bitterness, 
rage, anger, brawling, slander, and any form of malice. Okay, so notice the progression that that list creates. Bitterness is this impulse within us to carry resentment, to keep a record of wrongs. Right? Aristotle uses this word to say that those who display it are hard to reconcile. <laughs> right? So if you carry bitterness, you just carry that, that sense of resentment in life towards other people, and what happens? That, that starts right here in the gut, in the heart, in the soul. And the, the way the list reads is this progression that begins to flow out of the heart, out of the mouth, and then impacts the external relationships around you. Right? So, so rage and anger is the outburst. Right? It's going to be the, the spark that begins to set that bitterness to flame. And so you might see it through brawling, which literally means to shout and to yell at one another. You, you might see it through slander, which means to speak ill of somebody else, to vilify, to, to abuse them with your words. And then, and then you see malice, which basically means your intent is to harm someone else. Right? That word for malice really speaks to the destruction of fellowship, the destruction of neighborly relationships. And so, again, Paul is saying, set all those things aside. Get rid of them. That is not the life of the believer. It doesn't matter who might be in your path. We are not to ever carry ourselves in such a way. Rather, be kind, be compassionate, be forgiving. Forgive one another just as Christ forgave you. The, this, the uh, similarities between kindness and compassion that you find in this text is this awareness of other people's needs. Right? That's, that's really what is being driven home there, that you have a sensitivity and an understanding of what other people need. That's, that's how you begin to demonstrate kindness and compassion to others. But you also have here this call to forgiveness, right? That the mark of the Christian, the mark of the believer, is one of forgiveness. Right? And part of that is why? Because Christ has forgiven us. None of us stands um, perfect, right? All of us have problems. We have mistakes. We have shame. We have brokenness. All of us is deserving, according to the scriptures, of death. But what has God done for you? He's forgiven you, right? He He has set you free through the mercy of Christ Jesus. And so forgiveness is what brings us into the family of Christ, and it needs to be the marker of the family of Christ. Now, here's the thing about forgiveness. It's not just one directional. A lot of times we read stories like this or verses like this when it says forgive one another as Christ forgave you, and you think about how you should just extend forgiveness to others. But part of it is that we need to go seek it from others, right? It's not just, I forgive you, but will you forgive me? And so you have to not just give it, but seek it. And those are part of the elements of, of how the body of Christ begins to live out the example that Christ set for us. And that's, that's really a huge task and an incredibly important task. And we get an insight to the importance of it through this verse that we find in verse 30. Right? So, so think about this compilation of things that we are being taught here. Right? All the different things that we're being instructed to do. And everything is about the neighbor, right? Everything is about your relationship with somebody else, right? Put aside falsehood, put put aside anger, put aside stealing, put aside unwholesome talk, put aside bitterness and rage and malice, right? Because all those things destroy your relationship with with the neighbor, but rather choose truth, right? Work hard to meet their needs. Speak in a way that builds them up. Be kind, be compassionate, be forgiving. All these things work for the neighbor. And so 
What we realize then is that when we fail to live according to these guidelines, when we fail to live in a way that demonstrates love for the neighbor, what Paul has just told us here is that that grieves the Holy Spirit. And I want the weight of that to to rest on us for a moment. Because the word grieve means to wound, to to cause pain, to cause sorrow. So so if you think about the Spirit of God, what does the Spirit of God do, right? It, It opens our hearts to the gospel. It opens us up to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to who he is, his beauty, his majesty, and it brings us into his body. And it helps us see that we need to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what does it do? It creates a new humanity, creates the church, right? Where the dividing wall of hostility that that previously existed is no longer there. And people who used to never associate with each other now associate with each other. Why? Because we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the work of the Spirit. And so what Paul just said is, is that when you choose to live your life in a way that breaks down your relationship with the neighbor, you are working in direct opposition to the Spirit of God. You are working against what he is trying to achieve, and it wounds him. It grieves him. So what I would tell you is that one of the last things that I ever want to be a part of is anything that hurts the heart of God. That's what's at stake here. We, We should never conduct ourselves in a way that grieves the Holy Spirit. And so the summary statement that I think really kind of ties it all together is when Paul says, so follow God's example. Uh, more literally, it means be imitators of God. Mimic him, right? Reflect him. And how are we to do that but by walking in the way of love? I love that phrase, right? If there's anything that you take with you today, that's it, right? That we can become people who are able to walk in the way of love, right? That's, that's the posture that we need to maintain. And any and every scenario. And, and the way that it's elaborated, elaborated in this particular text is this metaphor of Jesus being a sacrifice, right? A fragrant offering, a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. So let me just remind you of what we see in Hebrews, okay? You, you remember prior to Jesus' death on the cross, the sacrificial system required people to come to the temple to find forgiveness for sins. They had to bring a sacrifice. They had to bring an offering, present it to the priest, and hope that in some way they'd be uh, forgiven, But they knew they had to do it year after year, time after time, because truly, no sacrifice was perfect, right? They they continued to sin. And so what the author of Hebrews tells us is that the reason they did that is because the law instituted that the only way you could find forgiveness was through the shedding of blood, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so when Jesus is willing to sacrifice himself on the cross, he enters into not the most holy of holies in the earthly tabernacle, but the holy of holies in the heavenly tabernacle before God, offering his life as a perfect sacrifice once and for all, so that all who find its mercy will receive salvation and redemption, and he will remember our sins no more. And the Bible tells us that that was a beautiful aroma to God, an acceptable sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. Okay, so that's the metaphor. So here's how it's an example. What we find through Jesus' willingness to be a sacrifice was somebody who was willing at all costs to set aside his own self-interest for the good of the neighbor. Set aside his own desires 
for the will of God. He is the one that demonstrates through his own passion, falling on his knees in the garden before his death, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Because he knows that God is love and his will is love. And through his self-sacrifice for the good of others, that's where you're gonna find harmony and togetherness as a people and as a community rather than division. So that's the example, that we would live lives sacrificially for the good of the interest of others, setting our own interest aside so that we can find harmony and peace in the community within which God has placed us, right? So beautiful passage that applies to any scenario, right? You're experiencing strife with your family, you're experiencing strife with peers at work, whatever it is, choose to get rid of the things that create bitterness and disrupt the relationship with the neighbor and choose rather to clothe yourself, put on kindness, humility, compassion, and forgiveness, right? Follow God's example. Walk in the way of love. Beautiful passage. And I think it speaks very clearly to our context today. And when we bring up this subject of racism, I think it becomes an incredibly powerful guidance for us. I, I wanna reiterate that I'm not gonna pretend like anything I offer today is going to magically solve generational sin and systemic racism that exists around us. My hope, while I know it may not lead us to answers, is that it could possibly lead us to lament and to mourn and, and maybe leads us to repentance and, and maybe leads us to a resolve so that at least we can continue to fight towards progress by following the example that God laid out for us in Christ. And so how do we do that? How do we practically bring this sort of guidance that we have here in the book of Ephesians to life in, in a context that is continually surrounded and impacted by the torrents of racism? What, what is our response? Well, part of what I would say um, to, to offer some suggestions for us to consider this morning is that what I'm gonna share is, is the fruit of several conversations that have taken place over the last couple of weeks. That's not just my ideas. I've, I've spoken with friends, black and white, uh, colleagues, associates. Just I've, I've tried to, to gather greater awareness and understanding through this process. And so part of what I'm sharing is, is not just my perspective, but, but, but the perspective of others that I've found to be very in, insightful and very helpful. But I would also say that, that part of what we have to do here is just acknowledge that this is going to take time and it's going to take resolve. And, and all of us have to look at this thoughtfully from our own perspective, right? And start within our own hearts if we're really going to enable and exact and be a part of change and truly follow God's example, right? So, so here's one of the first things that I would say is... I think for all of us that fall in the category of privilege and, and not being a victim of racism, one of the first things we have to acknowledge and admit is our own ignorance and our own inability to truly understand. And really just kind of put a period on that because I don't think we ever really will understand. And, and I'm very well aware of the fact that it's, I feel ill-equipped to even have this conversation with you today <laughs> because of my own ignorance. 
when, when I was a missions pastor, we would prepare people to go serve as missionaries in other parts of the world. And it was interesting to, to think about the progression that you would have in terms of preparing somebody to engage another culture. And like on the, on the first end, you could really begin to read and research and study. And like, let's say we're getting ready to send somebody to China. I mean, I could read all, all the material in the world on China and get an understanding of their history, their culture, their background, all these different things, and, and actually fool myself into thinking that I, I knew a lot about China. And then I'd go on a trip, and I'd spend like a week or two weeks there, and, and I would realize, oh my gosh, there was so much I didn't really understand. But now I've been here. Like now I've, I've seen the streets, I've met people, I've actually interacted in this culture. And, and I would realize the leap that would take place in my awareness and understanding. And then we would send missionaries to China. And they wouldn't just go for a week or two. They'd actually live there for several years, and they'd become the teachers to me and, and, and begin to explain, well, here's what's really going on in the culture that you don't see after a week or two. And here's what also is I mean, they could live 5, 10, 15, 20 years there. And you know what? They'd never become Chinese. Never. And so even with that sort of commitment and that sort of submersion, they still wouldn't be Chinese. They would still be somewhat ignorant of the culture that they were living in. And so let me just go ahead and, and acknowledge the obvious. I am a white American male. And by those three facts alone, you could argue I am one of the most, if not the most privileged people on the planet. And no matter what I read, no matter how many conversations I have, I will be ignorant of what racism really feels like. And I think many of us need to acknowledge that. Because that helps create humility, and I think it also helps create confession, right? That there were blind spots and are blind spots in our lives just by default. And no matter how hard we try, we're never fully going to understand. So I think that's step one. Some, some form of admission of ignorance. Some form of, of admission that there is a gap that we need to be mindful of so that we can be more effective in taking the following steps. Because right? if we can do that, then that hopefully helps us set aside the bitterness and the rage and and all these things that can kind of brew up when this conversation emerges. The second thing I think we need to do is we need to break patterns. Right, so this is uh, something that has been very convicting in my own life. Right, is how am I truly going to educate myself? How am I truly going to, if I know I can't fully ever understand, how am I at least going to somewhat understand? And part of what I've realized is that what happens is, is that we have patterns in our life that insulate us from the greater narrative and contribute to our lack of understanding, right? Because it's, it's kind of human nature for us to gravitate to people that think like us, look like us, value the same things we value, live the same way we live, and so we, we gravitate that way. We do it with politics, we do it with church, we do it with a lot of different philosophy, we do it in a lot of different ways, and we do it by race. And so if I'm ever truly going to understand what it is like to be a minority in this country, be it African-American, Latino, Asian, you name it, 
I have to create different patterns where I'm not insulated and only surrounded by people that look like me, think like me, and act like me. So here's a very pointed question I've been asking myself. I'd invite you to ask yourself as well. How many black friends do you have? How many Latino friends? How many Asian friends do you have? And I don't mean acquaintances. And I don't mean colleagues. Like people in your life that you would invite over for dinner. And you can have, sit down and have real meaningful, serious conversations with. If your answer is a very small list, like mine is, then that's part of the problem. That's part of what's contributing to the gap. That's what's creating this, this disparity in our ability to have a meaningful conversation and to truly grow in progress. So one of the things I'm working on personally is how do I break the patterns so that I have more meaningful relationships with people that are different than me? And that's the, the next part of that step, right? Build authentic, meaningful relationships. Not just when culture's talking about it, right? Not just when it's seasonal and it spreads up, but, but actually build genuine friendships. And you know what? That takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time, but it has to be authentic. What I, what I would say is that I fully recognize and agree that the issues of racism need to be fought across the board because it is so systemic. It needs to be talked about when we talk about law enforcement or education or the economy. I understand all those things, but I would also tell you I think where perhaps the greatest effectiveness where this war can be waged is around the dinner table, where we actually build genuine, meaningful community with people that are different than us and get to know their stories and get to know their heartache and get to know their fears. Like that, that's where change really, I think, begins to happen in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so we have to build authentic relationships. Now, when we've done these things, admitted that we don't know certain things and we break patterns and we build relationships, this becomes perhaps the most critical step. We need to listen. Right? We talked about this last week with unwholesome talk, that it would benefit those who listen. If you're gonna be kind, if you're gonna be compassionate, which means you're sensitive to other people's needs, what do you have to do? You have to listen. <laughs> we, we can't pretend to know what people's needs are if we don't know how to listen. And I think that's one of the greatest challenges in our country right now is we have forgotten how to listen to each other. And so we need to just choose to, to stop and to listen and to truly hear other people and what they're going through. And when we do that, that should hopefully lead us to this final step that I would present to us to consider this morning, which is something that I, I know we have talked about as a church and we know is something that should be sincere in all of our hearts, which is what should hopefully result from all those steps is that we are becoming a people who love justice. But that's who we want to be as a church. Because here's what the gospel does. The gospel leads you to justice. That's what it does. You, 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 a lot of times we try to separate it out as like this this optional ministry thing that we can do on the side if we want to, that the gospel is really about saving souls and, and getting people to believe in Jesus. That's really the gospel. And all this other stuff is kind of based on your calling and your passion. But you can't do that, right? Because it, when you think about the gospel, you, you don't separate truth. You don't separate mercy. You don't separate grace, right? Those are all things that you find in the gospel. Guess what you find in the gospel? You find justice. If we truly believe in the gospel and love the gospel and want to follow the gospel, it's going to lead us to justice, which means we fight for our neighbor, right? We, we fight for their needs being met no matter what, 
right? We strive to build up community, not tear it down. And so we have to become a people who love justice. Now let me try to wrap all this up with just a couple of final comments on how we try to do this well. And, and part of it for me is setting appropriate expectations, right? Being willing to ask tough questions is obviously a huge part of it, but then we also have to recognize, as I've said repeatedly, none of this happens overnight. One of the things I love about this text so much is the, when it says, be kind and be compassionate, and then even when it says follow, uh, God's example, the word follow means to be born. I love that, right? So it's this idea of new birth, and what do you do when you're born? You grow, right? And you become someone. You're on this process of never-ending maturation, never-ending growth, and you're always asking yourself, who am I becoming? I need to become a person who is kind. I need to always become a person who is compassionate, become a person who is forgiving, becoming a person who is walking in love. We never stop. Each day we wake up and we say, how do I take one more step in becoming this person? We never arrive. And so we have to have the resolve to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dedicate myself to this, not just for a season, not just why there are riots going on or while it's on the news, but for the rest of my days, whenever I'm given an opportunity to love the neighbor, I'm going to take it because I want to become a person who's walking in the way of love. And the way we do that is to follow the Spirit's lead. Right, that's the real challenge today. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in a way that you would walk in the way of love. Because what we know is that God is love. And so if we are going to pursue his will, if we're going to pursue his purposes, if we're going to pursue his plans above our own, then we know that that path is going to lead us in the way of love. So let us courageously pray and ask God to reveal his will and give us the courage and the resolve to then be obedient. That we could truly follow Christ's example and pray the prayer that is the most effective in times like these. Not our prayers, not the prayers of a theologian, not the prayers of society, but the Lord's prayer. That his kingdom would come and his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Because it's his people, we want to become those who are walking in the way of love. Let's commit to such a task. Father in heaven, we thank you. And we confess, God, that this is a conversation and a situation that goes well beyond our abilities to know how to navigate, Father. But we look to you to lead us. We look to you to help us follow your way, to follow the example that was set for us through Christ. God, that we would be able to truly walk in a way of love. So Father, we ask that your name would be holy. God, that it would be revered, that it would be renowned here in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, that we'd be willing to ask difficult questions. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come. God, we know that it's not by our efforts, but only by your strength and your power. God, that your will would be done. Father, not our will, not our impulses, but yours be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, give us what we need each and every day. Give us kindness. Give us compassion. Give us forgiveness. 
And let us be grateful for the ways in which you provide. Father, let us forgive those who have wronged us just in the same way that we have been forgiven. May we seek forgiveness as quickly as we desire it. Father, may we also never be led into the temptation to continue in the practice of evil. Father, let us never fall victim to letting our guard down and contributing to things that can break down the relationship of the neighbor. Father, deliver us from such evil ways. And let us once again marvel at your power, at your glory, forever and ever. Amen.